Please open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. We'll focus tonight on 13 to 20 since we did 10 through 13 a month ago, but we'll read it all for context. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly, As I ought to speak. Let's pray. Father, we ask again through your Holy Spirit that you illumine your word to us this evening. God, again, thank you for your most gracious and precious word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll begin with 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So just to review, since we did handle 13 last time, again, we are commanded in the word to take up the whole armor of God, leaving nothing of it behind. And of course, this is preparation for the battle. Remember, sharpening your sword, tightening on your armor in the day of battle. There will be no time for preparation. It will be too late. Before we go on to the remaining verses, though, and the substance of the actual armor and arms of God, it's important to consider the admonitions. In our scripture reading from earlier, Romans 13, 11 through 14, every time I read it, which has been a lot lately, Uh, Romans 13, I keep going back to Christ's words in the Garden of Gethsemane, so if you can put up with me for a few minutes, I want to go back and forth between those two things, Paul's admonitions in Romans 13, and Christ and his followers in the Garden of Gethsemane. So listen, Romans 13, I won't read it again, we just read it, but, and do this, Paul says, Knowing the time, you can hear the urgency. It is high time to awake out of sleep because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
You see, time has passed. The night is far spent, in fact. The day is at hand. Therefore, he says, cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust and strife are put away. Let us walk properly as in the day. You may remember from Sunday school, Ecclesiastes 10, the princes that feast in the morning, in the best hours. Woe to you, O land, Ecclesiastes 10, 16 through 17, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Romans 13, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. In Romans 13, we can hear Jesus' admonitions to his disciples, both in the Garden of Gethsemane and down to us today. Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, there's a shorter vision, a version in John. He basically tells his followers, I'm going over there to pray. He tells his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. But when he returned and found them sleeping, he said, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. A second time he went away to pray. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them asleep again. A third time he went away to pray. And when he returned, he said, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. We'll see in a moment how prepared or unprepared they were when the battle came to them. And we can hear Paul echoing back from that scripture reading from Romans 13. Do this. The night is far spent. You can hear Jesus saying the day is at hand. It's high time to awake. Paul says elsewhere, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And he says here in Romans 13, for salvation is nearer than when we first believed. So Paul says, put on the armor of light. You could just hear Jesus imploring his disciples to see the big picture, the big picture, to walk properly and put on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So how did Peter respond in the Garden of Gethsemane? Judas had just arrived with a detachment of troops and the leading officials, the religious officers, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Peter had come prepared with a sword. And after finally waking up, he gets right down to business and lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And you can be sure he wasn't aiming for the ear. But Peter was wrong in this. Always so eager to tell Jesus the way things should be, what Jesus should or should not be doing. All brashness and swagger, 
but not a spiritual ear. So Jesus redirected Peter's attack. Matthew twenty six fifty two to 55, telling him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? I say all this to help us remember that the armor of God verses in Ephesians are likewise focused on the spiritual fight and not a physical fight. Remember that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Certainly this arena here, the earth that we live on, the neighborhoods we are in, our workplaces, the governments we are subject to, certainly this is where we are called to act out our Christian life and put on that spiritual armor. But we are not to neglect our spiritual well-being in favor of earthly attainments. And so although it was probably the armor and arms in Ephesians that first riveted my attention to Ephesians 6 as a child, it's important that we emphasize the spiritual qualities of the armor that we're about to go over and ask what are their relevance to the spiritual fight ahead, lest we be found fighting the wrong battle. And now Paul lays out the armor of God. In verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, he's speaking here in the past tense, having already done it, having girded yourself. This is the preparation. Paul says we must have about us the belt or the girdle underlying of truth. Matthew Henry and John Calvin and others suggest this represents sincerity and integrity, which is essential to the Christian faith. Truth is the very basis of that faith in confessing the name of Christ as Lord and Savior. Matthew Henry wrote of this, there can be no religion without sincerity. But Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't necessarily agree with that emphasis or that aspect of it, but he wants to put the emphasis in a different place on Christ himself. Lloyd-Jones makes, it, Lloyd-Jones makes it plain that such, such truth must be understood to represent not just our own sincerity as shaky a foundation as that is, but the integrity of the word of God as the very basis of our faith, by which he means, I'll quote Lloyd-Jones, a belief in and a knowledge of the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. It is an objective truth I then possess in a subjective manner. It means a mastery of the truth, but it also means being mastered by the truth. I'm held by the truth, 
This is the thing that binds me and holds me together and puts me on my feet and gives me vigor and strength and power. Or to express it more particularly, it means that I do not merely look at the Bible intellectually and study it as if it were the works of Shakespeare, but rather that its truth gets hold of me and governs my whole attitude to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to everything that happens. I have girded myself with it, end quote. The breastplate of righteousness is the next bit of armor described by Paul. And it speaks to the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. It first shields us from the divine wrath and then protects us from the enemy, Satan, who would assail us. This is Paul happily putting aside all of his former boasts and accomplishments. Remember, his, his righteousness as the Hebrew of Hebrews. But instead, Paul lays that aside and puts on Christ's righteousness. Last time, we spoke of putting on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the wiles of the devil, his dirty tricks. Those wiles are always rooted in idolizing the sinner over the Savior. Satan would have us to dwell on ourselves and the despicableness of our sin. He tempts us to think, how could I even pray to a holy God? But we have the promises in God's word that we must go to it and plead that truth. Turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. This is Christ as the mediator. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is using the word as a sword against the enemy. The word is truth, and it tells us that Christ is our perfectly placed mediator to our Father and Judge So do not focus on your fitness or even on yesterday's sin, but always plead the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. More than anything, soldiers spend their time marching, marching to the battle. And so they must have their legs and feet prepared for the expedition. And also when they stand and fight, they are relying on this critical piece of armor. In the midst of trials, it is the gospel and its knowledge that brings us peace. John Calvin wrote, As soldiers cover their legs and feet to protect them against cold and other injuries, so we must be shod with the gospel. 
if we would pass unhurt through the world, it is the gospel of peace. And it is so called as every reader must perceive from its effects. For it is the message of our reconciliation to God. And nothing else gives peace to the conscience. Just as the Roman soldier was connected firmly to the ground by his sandal, with hobnails driven through the sandal, sticking into the ground the cleats of yesteryear, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace provide us a firmness and confidence in the gospel through Christ. I played many years of soccer as a child, wearing cleats and shin guards, But I remember when I went to FSU, I was a poor college student and just thought I would get out there with my tennis shoes rather than going to buy a set of cleats. So as soon as I went to plant my foot running up to the ball, my left foot to hit it with my right, the left foot went straight out and I fell down. Likewise, without the right preparation of this critical piece of armor, The Roman soldier, his feet would have gone right out from under him as he swung at the enemy with his sword, making him vulnerable and making him ineffective in fighting the enemy. We must root everything in the gospel of peace. And so as good soldiers of Jesus Christ, be prepared to stand for the gospel in which you first believed. Just as Pastor Sharp preached this morning. What is that gospel? Well, there's no limit practically, but we'll we'll choose earlier in this very book. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, that's a gospel worth fighting for. Paul in 1 Corinthians sixteen thirteen admonished the church. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be, be strong. And we can be brave because we know that the gospel brings the promise of victory. Moving on to verse 16. Ephesians 6, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Faith is everything in the midst of temptation. Faith in Christ receiving him and the benefits of redemption. Grace received through faith in Christ is our strong shield. We've already discussed the enemy. And his wiles or tricks. And here we see him on the attack with these arrows or these darts. But it is faith that extinguishes those flaming darts. His temptations to sin and to attack our very foundation with doubt. They may be aflame, those doubts, with all the sinful passions and emotions that would seek to carry us away. But resting on the bedrock of faith, putting Christ's shield before us, we will carry the day. This is because faith does not look at itself, but at its object, at Christ. 
And I would encourage the children here who have never heard the expression, the great roll call of faith, to examine the chapter, uh, chapter 11 of Hebrews this evening. The great roll call of faith. The saints whose object was in fact Christ. Verse 17 of Ephesians 6. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Key to this verse is another use of this idea of a helmet of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 10, where again Paul writes, right back to the garden. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, an additional word here, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Lloyd-Jones argues this hope that comes from our salvation, this helmet, is indeed a, a hope of salvation, a future hope. The hope of Christ's coming, when all will be set aright and Christ rides forth triumphantly and his people at last dwell in peace, free from evil, free from those fiery darts, free from pain and death, with life forevermore in the sun. This is the hope of glory found throughout the word, but particularly Romans 8, 34 to 39. Who is he who condemns? Every, every sentence here drips with hope. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Put on the hope of salvation. And turning in that same verse to the sword of the Spirit, Paul tells us we must take it up. We don't leave it hanging on the wall. And that's why I again encourage the children to memorize and know all of the armor of God by heart. The sword of the spirit. This is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word divines and gets at one's very being. Cutting through nonsense. And getting to the root of matter. Also in Second Timothy three, sixteen and 17. Paul writes. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
That means God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And there goes Paul again, thoroughly equipped. He means taking up the whole armor of God and neglecting none of it. Of our text, Matthew Henry wrote, The word of God subdues and mortifies evil desires and blasphemous thoughts as they rise within and answers unbelief and error as they assault from without. A single text, well understood and rightly applied, at once destroys a temptation or an objection and subdues the most formidable adversary. And so you can see the word of God's value in spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But how do we use the word as a sword in spiritual battle? Last time we talked about how Christ met Satan's temptations in Luke 4. What did he meet it with? Well, did he run away? No. Did he explain or reason with Satan? No. He simply quoted scripture. Just one example from Luke 4, 3 through 4. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him saying, it is written in the Old Testament. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The Christian soldier must be like-minded with Christ. And the way to know the mind of Christ is to read and rely on his word with the help of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, we don't see prayer ascribed to any particular bit of armor here. But it is nevertheless part of the armor of God, part of the armor and arms, weapons of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. We see the final piece of the armor of God, prayer. Praying always, Matthew Henry describes that as, though set and solemn prayer may not be seasonable when other duties are to be done, yet short, pious prayers darted out always are so. We must use holy thoughts in our ordinary course. Of course, we can't be praying always. I'm not praying right now. But we can always know where to go during the battle. With supplication in the spirit, this is calling to God for help in our needs. Matthew Henry again. We must pray with all kinds of prayer, public, private, confession of sin, Petition for mercy and thanksgiving for favors received. And we must do it by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, in dependence on and according to his teaching. And he concludes this verse and praying for the needs of the saints, the church, for our brothers and sisters. But let the prayer, the one who would pray for others, not forget that this is going to mean talking with our brothers and sisters and getting to know them and being prepared to take up their burden alongside them. 
But let that brother and sister not forget to be genuine with their spiritual family members, to be open and honest, to treat each conversation with another saint as a chance to be blessed by those who would seek to know you so that they might best pray for you. After all, no one is ever just fine. John Calvin said about this verse, we're exhorted to persevere in prayer. Every tendency to weariness must be counteracted by a cheerful performance of the duty. But what is the meaning of always? When everything flows on prosperously, when we are easy and cheerful, we seldom feel any strong excitement to prayer. Or rather, rather we never flee to God. But when we are driven by some kind of distress, Paul therefore desires us to allow no opportunity to pass on no occasion to neglect prayer so that praying always is the same thing with praying both in prosperity and in adversity. He gives a remedy, though. If at any time we are colder or more indifferent about prayer, than we ought to be because we do not feel the pressure of immediate necessity. Let us instantly reflect how many of our brethren are worn out by varied and heavy afflictions, are weighed down by sore perplexity or are reduced to the lowest distress. If reflections like these do not rouse us from our lethargy, we must have hearts of stone. And this idea of praying for all the saints, our brothers and sisters, feeds into the final verses. So let's read them together. I'll I'll go back to 18, since it's all prayer. And then we'll focus on 19 and 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's Paul coming to the conclusion of his letter, pouring his heart out to his people and praying for his, his asking them to pray for his own needs we see the idea of verse 18, which we just covered, praying for others, specifically intended, extended to Paul, the man of God. He asked them to pray for him with bold, for boldness in proclaiming the gospel, in preaching and evangelism, the very gospel he had boldly preached to them. And Matthew Henry here encourages us to particularly pray for the minister exposed to hardships and perils in their work. And I don't think he was saying that that's some ministers. We understand that that's all ministers. And finally, John Calvin says of the minister, Paul does not ask for himself the powers of an acute debater or I should rather say of a dexterous sophist. 
that he might shield himself from his enemies by false pretenses. It is that I may open my mouth to make a clear and strong confession. For when the mouth is half shut, the sounds which it utters are doubtful and confused. Let us therefore remember that Paul, when he resorted to the intercessions of his brethren, was influenced by no distrust or hesitation. His eagerness to obtain them arose from his resolution that no privilege which the Lord had given him should be overlooked. Well, I trust that you've paid attention and have already realized points of application of this text to yourself and the church as a whole. So I don't feel the need to engage in a lengthy section of application. But two things. First, I want to encourage... I want to encourage the wounded from 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The night is far spent. The day is at hand, and it has been long. Let us walk together as a church, as children of the light. And second, perhaps the best application would be to follow Paul's example and pray for our minister. So let's do that. Lord, we thank you that our pastor has no doubt prayed for a boldness to preach your word. And that your people have prayed the same thing for him. And that as recently as this morning, he was jealous of the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen him as a husband and a father, as a leader in Presbytery and in this church. Protect him from wounds and when they come, 
Let him see your good hand in them. For discipline and growth. We treasure him and your spirit in him. So thank you for that good gift. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's rise and sing a hymn of response. Hymn.